good morning. I guess we'll get started exactly 30 seconds early here. There is a uh, clipboard going around. If you want to put your email address down, and we'll sometimes send out notes. Uh, I always have the best I plan of like sending out weekly updates. It never happens. Uh, but if you have questions, sometimes people want to see some of the PowerPoints, uh, et cetera, or have questions about something we talked about that week, I'll send that. We can do that via email. Welcome to the Gospel According to Peter. Uh, and your teachers for this, I'm Jeff Benny, Andy Gamp. Uh, we, we both have doctors, but in totally different uh, areas. Absolutely. I'll put you to sleep, he'll save your soul. <laughs> uh, and like I tell, I tell all the guys who are uh, ministry uh, people, I said, the difference between me and them is we can both put you to sleep, I guarantee you wake up. <laughs> you put you to sleep before That's right. Uh, so what we're talking about uh, this semester, which is about 16, 17 weeks on Sundays, uh, Gospel according to Peter. Uh, we. Those of you who've been to Otter Creek, uh, myself, Stephen Ramsey did uh, Jesus as a Rabbi, the, uh, the book of Matthew, last year in the fall. We're going to do the book of Peter this uh, semester in the fall. And so the, the question you go, when I look at my Bible, I go, I don't have a book of Peter. Uh, you do, it's just we don't call it Peter. We call it Mark. Mark. Uh, there, there's a reason for that, and we're going to get into that. Today, what I'm going to do is kind of set up the book, kind of give you the background, kind of, in order to understand the Gospels as they're written, you really have to understand the cultural setting in which they are set. And you have to understand to whom they're written, who writes them, to whom they're written, who the audience is. Because all four Gospels are very different in their target audience. We kind of think today that they're all written to us, right? You know, they, they wanted to have four Gospels and that the Bible was intentionally, uh, you know, that the, the apostles got together and said, all right, here's how we're going to write this. That's not how the Bible came to be. And we'll talk about it a little bit this morning. There we go. All right. So we're talking about today who wrote it, when was it written, where was it written? To whom was it written? To whom was that? English people, is that the correct English? Well done. Thank you. Uh, I, I took no college English, by the way. I cleft out of all my English, and, and so I cannot guarantee that my syntax and grammar <coughs> was correct. However, the grammar assistant in uh, uh, Word says did not underline that, so I figured it was correct. And we're talking a little bit about the structure of Mark. All right, so who wrote the Gospel of Mark? There are three competing theories. You have Mark wrote Mark, and also depends on what, how you interpret the Bible. You have Mark wrote Mark. You have the theory that a disciple of Mark's wrote Mark. And then you have the theory that 250 years after Mark died, the early church had someone write the book and attribute it to Mark. Uh, it's and part of this you have to understand culture in the first century. Pseudographia is, that's my only church word I'm going to throw out today. Pseudographia today. 
it was a normal part that disciples would write information and letters and attribute it to their teacher. Think about it, it happened all throughout the Middle Ages, right? If you look at the old Dutch masters, the artists, one of the biggest problems we have today in the art world is students of like Vermeer and some of the Dutch guys would, would paint in the style of their master, and then they would send it out under his name. Uh, and so that happened a lot in the first century. Disciples would write things and attribute it to their, to their teacher. Uh, in this particular case, we really don't think that that occurred. Uh, you'll, if you get on, online and look, you'll see people talk about that a lot, about how Mark was really written in 90, 110, 150, 275 uh, AD. Uh, but we have this, uh, Pythus, uh, who lived from AD 60 to 130, uh, actually says this, and the presbyter said this, uh, Mark, having been the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered. It was not, however, in exact order that he related the sayings and deeds of Jesus Christ. For he neither, neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him. We're going to look at that, and that may not be 100% true. Uh, Mark may have actually seen Jesus. Uh, but afterwards, he accompanied Peter, who accommodated his instructions and the necessities, but with no intention of giving a regular narrative of the Lord's sayings. Therefore, wherefore, Mark made no mistake in thus writing some of the things he remembered them. For he, one thing he took a special care not to admit anything that he heard and not to put any fictitious into the statements. So basically what Pythus is saying is, uh, so he wrote this probably around 90 AD. By 90 AD, it was widely recognized that this book existed, and that it was written by Mark, and it was attributed to Peter telling Mark everything about Jesus. So, I mean, that's pretty early. And so you feel pretty confident about that. And then uh, Irenaeus, who, Irenaeus is a disciple. John, when John teaches, Irenaeus, uh, is a disciple of the disciples of the Apostle John. He what these are early church fathers. Uh, and basically he says the same thing. After their departure, Mark, the disciple interpreter of Peter, it also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. So we're pretty confident that this book was written by Mark. And it was written, we're going to talk about when was it written, which is the other issue to get into early on. All right, when? Uh, some people say as early as 44 AD. Uh, most stated in the mid-60s. Uh, we're, we're pretty confident that, at least my interpretation is that this was probably written in the mid-60s. I know it's not written a whole lot later because what happens to Peter in AD 67? This happens a lot in the Roman Empire. You get, you get crossways with the emperor, you become a foot shorter really quick. Uh, that Peter is executed around 8067, 8068. Uh, most people put 8070 as the latest. Some people who want to put this after 8070 do it because Jesus talks about the fall of Jerusalem, which occurs in 8070. 
And so people who want to make this not spirit-driven say, well, Mark wrote it after all the events occurred and then attributed them to Jesus. Whereas most people will look at this and say he wrote it earlier, actually when those were prophecies of Jesus, and they come through in AD 70. All right, let's talk about the timeline of the Gospels. Uh, there are four Gospels as we have them now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, in the 8040s, Matthew writes something that we do not have a copy of today. Uh, we know it exists because the early, early church fathers talk about it. It's one of those uh, accidents of history. Uh, but we know he wrote something of the we'll call it the oracles of Jesus. It was not a book, a gospel the way we think about it. But we know it exists, but we'll get to that a little bit later when we talk about some history. Mark writes the gospel somewhere around 80, 60s. Matthew follows him pretty close behind in time. Uh, Luke then is behind those two a little bit. And remember, when Luke, write, when Luke writes the book we call Luke, Luke and the book of Acts are actually one book. He wrote them all simultaneously. It was the story of the church. So he did not set out to write the way the, the way that our New Testament is set up. Luke and Acts are one should be one book because if, if you read Luke, as soon as the book of Luke ends and you flip over to Acts, story just continues. He did not set them up as two distinct stories. It's one whole story. It's really kind of a bummer that. Luke is separated by by John in, in a way like just like I'm not sure the history of that of why it is but it would be it's almost nice if like you know they would put Luke and Acts together that would make a lot more sense for readers uh, there's even there's a like the people who write the NIV Biblica has come up with this uh, version of you know the Bible where it's called Books of the Bible and they've just it's the same NIV translation but they've just taken them out they reordered them, yeah, and they started with Luke and Acts. You know, they put a right at the beginning, Luke and Acts together. Because there's no, it doesn't necessarily like change what the substance of it if you have to change the order. Uh, and one of the other things cool they do in that is they take out the verse numbers uh, and they put it all on one page. You know, so it's like a big column, so it looks like a book. You know, and just uh, it's not the only way to study it, but it's it's uh, for for reading. Anyway, right. Because remember, chapters and verses were added by the Bishop of Usser, I think, in 15-something. So prior to this, these were all written, like Andy says, they're written like books. Uh, there's no verses, and so you know you don't go, well, we're talking about the first six verses today. You read, you read thoughts. Uh, and then John comes along much, much later than all the rest of these and writes uh, John. In fact, uh, I, this is a George Park kind of slide because it's got lots of information in it. Uh, this is the timeline, and there's epistles, gospels, history, and prophecy, right? And so this gives you kind of a timeline of where uh, the books were written. Because, you know, if you read the New Testament the way we do, you look at it and say, oh, clearly the gospels were written first, and so then... Paul, who is 
did not write any of the Gospels, read the Gospels before he wrote his letters. Didn't occur that way. As you can see, you have James really, really early on writing the book. And then you get the early Pauline God, uh, letters. Mark occurs somewhere in this, even he's saying time frame, 55 to 65. Uh, and then you see these two uh, Gospels written, and then you see all the other letters kind of show up. And then you get all the way out here to John. Uh, so John really doesn't uh, write his stuff until 30 years after everyone else. And remember, Jesus, the time of his teaching is somewhere around 30. So Jesus is teaching somewhere over here. So they don't start writing this stuff down until you're, you're starting to see that, that first generation of disciples getting older and they realize, I think, uh, powered by the Spirit, that maybe we should write this down to teach the next generation and the next generation. So they start writing stuff. And then part of that's also Paul writing all these letters back and forth to the churches that he is establishing. And then you see Peter and you see Jude and you see James doing the same thing. But remember when, uh, prior to most of this, the church was primarily Jewish. It really doesn't start moving out into the Gentile world until Paul starts making his first missionary journeys, which are right in here. Which is why he ends up having to write these letters, is that he goes on a journey, starts a church, goes back to where he comes from, which is Antioch, and has to write letters. They send him questions, he writes the letters back. Alright, now where was it written? Uh, Mark was written in the regions of Italy. Uh, the Barcionites were, this was an early church, uh, two uh, types of teaching of was Jesus real, was Jesus not real. So they, we just know from, we have this prologue was written in 280 that says it was written there. Uh, Arrhenius again, Clement of Alexandria, uh, say that he was in Rome when he wrote it. Uh, and we know from Timothy and Peter that Mark was in Rome about the same time uh, and was closely associated with Peter. So if you go with an 80, 60, 60 to 65, he was probably in Rome when he wrote this. If you go a little earlier than that, he was probably in uh, Antioch of Syria. Because that's where Peter was before Peter gets taken to Rome. Because remember in church history, the church starts in Jerusalem, but pretty soon after it gets started, it basically migrates to Antioch because of the, the persecution from the Jewish leadership. Uh, a little history. So this is the Humra, because part of, you know, in my mind, I was always like, well, the guys just wrote the book. They didn't read the other guy's thing. They just, the Holy Spirit told them, write this down. But when you actually start reading this, you realize, since Mark is the probably the earliest of the book, Matthew, Luke, and John read Mark before they wrote the books. Because if you look at, at the Synoptic Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they take basically the same time 
line as they go through Jesus' life. So it's very, very similar in how Jesus travels, where he travels, what time of his ministry do they travel. Uh, so they're very, they're called synoptic, which is Greek for the same view. They're, they're written very similar from a similar view. They're written to different people and different groups, so they have a little different emphasis on what Jesus does. But you can see how much uh, of the uh, the later two books, Luke, Matthew and Luke, are using what was in Mark. So of Mark's book, you know, 76% is said in the other two books, all both the other books. And only 3% is unique to Mark. And so uh, I think it's just interesting to realize, it kind of changed my mind when I was, oh, wow, these guys really did read each other before they set out to write some of this. So Mark would have been in pretty wide distribution uh, by the time Luke and Matthew, especially Luke's a little later, because, you know, Luke says he goes back, he researches everything he can research in order to tell Theophilus the story of the church. So he almost assuredly read Mark. He might and probably read Matthew as well. All right. Here's just some fun facts for the day. The reason Mark is the shortest book is in the first century, things were standardized. Scrolls were a certain length. So if you look at it in Greek, Mark is one scroll long. Matthew and Luke are much longer books. They're exactly two scrolls long. So it's not like he just wrote and told all the story. He had a target that he was looking for, which is, I'm going to tell this in a way that I can put on one scroll, and we can send it easily. So if that, that's one of those little gospel, gospel, secret gospel facts. You can drop that at your, at your next dinner party. You know Mark was just one scroll long? But that's also why it's the shortest of the books. In English, we lose a lot of this in English because we're translating this. Do you know how long the scroll was? Uh, not often. I actually looked at uh, about 16 chapters. <laughs> uh, there, was a, there was a standardized length so that when you went to the store, you could buy, you know, there were stores that sold on it, so you could just say, I need a scroll, I need two scrolls, and you got a standardized <coughs> scroll length. Uh, so that's why Mark, the reason Matthew is first in our Bible is that Matthew is the longest. And it's the most theologically dense from the early church's standpoint. Mark is not a, a theologically dense book because he did not intend to set out and write that. He writes a lot about what Jesus does and what Jesus says and who he says it to. He does not get in these deep theological statements. For instance, there's no Sermon on the Mount in Mark, you know, which is one, two, three and a half chapters in Matthew. Mark is action gospel. Yes, right? he's just like, boom, we're going. Boom. Immediately. Immediately. Jesus went here, he did this. He went here, he did that. That is the book of Mark. And part of that is Mark, and part of that is to whom he is writing it. It's a very different group. So the audience of Mark, uh, think about this. This is two Jewish guys, Peter and his scribe Mark, writing about a third Jewish guy, Jesus, to the masters of the universe. He is writing this to the church in Rome. So 
Romans are very, very, very different than the Jews. Uh, Mark has to explain the Jewish customs. When you get into, if you, if you read the book of Matthew or look at last year's class, Matthew uses Aramaic words. He doesn't explain anything about the Jewish customs. He just says, you know, it's, we went to the synagogue. It was the Sabbath. And you're assumed to have known what happens on those days because he's writing to Jews. Mark is writing to Romans. And so he has to explain everything. Uh, he translates Aramaic words into Greek, which would have been translated to Latin. Uh, and he also uh, talks a lot about persecution, martyrdom, which is what was occurring in the Roman church at the time that he writes this. Because they are having lots of issues in Rome. As you remember, uh, uh, Rome kicks the Jews out. Jews are pretty widespread. The churches seem to be a Jewish sect at this time. So when they have problems with the Jews, they also kick the Christians out. Because they're, they're in the Roman viewpoint, they're one and the same. And so uh, there's lots of persecution that's occurring in Rome, uh, etc. And also, there are lots of Latin words uh, in Mark, more so than any other of the Gospels. Uh, census, Centurion, uh, once again, we're, we're, all these words are interpreted for us and translated, so you don't see it back in the original. But Mark has lots of things. Uh, and then he taught, he uses lots of Roman statements that, that are Latin, that he then translates into Greek. So. He, he very interesting is translating backwards because if you know Bible history, after the Bible is collected in its Greek form, the first thing that happens is in 300, when it becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire, it gets translated into Latin. And so a lot of our early copies of the Bible are in Latin, which is translated from the Greek and, or, and maybe translated from the original Aramaic, depending on which book you're talking about. So uh, a lot of these only occur in Mark, and they're not in the New Testament, and more importantly, they're not in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament by uh, the Romans, and by the Roman powers that be. Uh, I threw this in here, I, I apologize for this, just to give you an idea of, uh, this was actually a paper, uh, Measuring Ancient Inequality. Uh, if, you know, talking about income inequality, is income inequality new? The answer is no. Uh, if you're a senator in Rome, remember that we're talking the masters of the universe here. If you're a senator in Rome, you are in a really good place. Uh, they normalized income to a one. Uh, so the average senator earned a hundred times what the average worker gets. And that was not, you know, that was just his base salary. That's not all his investments, all the lands that he owned, etc. cetera. Uh, then you have knights, which is called the equestrian order. This is important because when you get to the story of Jesus, the people that he runs into are these level people. Uh, Pontius Pilate, in order to be assigned as a governor, he's at minimum an equestrian which tells you how rich Pontius Pilate really was compared to the average person. 
Uh, it also tells you what, how many of them there were around in the Roman Empire. There's only 600 senators. Uh, there's 40,000 equestrians. Those are we would call upper middle managers uh, in our democracy today. Uh, and interesting enough, the legion commanders. So in the story of Jesus, we'll run into <coughs> we'll run into uh, commanders of the legion. There, there are 50 of them worldwide. Very powerful individuals. So that's some of the cultural background you have to understand when you start looking at the story of Jesus. So when he starts talking to people, you have to really, you know, the people then would know, like if we said, uh, hey, the president came to see me, we would know immediately how, how rare and important that was, that you're talking to the president. Sometimes we lose that when we read this story, the Gospels, of who Jesus is talking to because they, the word doesn't mean anything to us. Uh, centurions in the entire Roman army, there's only 2,500 centurions. So the story when Jesus is talking with some of the centurions, once again, a very powerful individual, not just an average Joe Blow. Uh, and so, uh, more importantly, the people Jesus the early church members and the early apostles would be down here the tradesmen, farmers, farm workers. You can see they're not super rich. Uh, and so, again, it gets into the culture of what was the culture in which Jesus is born and teaches and establishes the church. Is that you have uh, you know, an ordinary soldier. Uh, is roughly the same as an average worker. But the he, had, he had one advantage, is that he had the sword and he didn't. Uh, and so he also, uh, in, in Rome, the soldiers were professional. It was a 25-year enlistment. So when you join the army, you're in for 25 years. And you promoted your way up. Uh, and you tend to live in the same area for extended periods of time. And so here, it's, when I say that the master of the universe, this is Rome in AD 68. So right at this period of time. They were literally the masters of their entire domain. Everything that they knew about, they controlled. Uh, all the way up to Great Britain, Germany, Spain, all of North Africa, more importantly, all of the Nile Valley. Uh, and then into here. And so this is also obviously where the church is established when we're taught, when you read the, the writings of Peter and Paul and the missionary trips, they're establishing the church throughout the Roman Empire. And now to get back to what I talked about that we know where we knew that Matthew had written something earlier. At this time, the uh, Parthian Empire is here. This is the old Babylonian Empire for the Parthians. About 150 years from now, the Romans conquered the Parthians. And so the church, being the church, says, since this is part of Rome, we're going to go establish churches where these pagan Parthians are at. They get to the capital of Parthian Empire, and the church is already there. And it's growing and exploding. And they ask them, 
We know this from one of the early church fathers writing in Latin. How do you know about Jesus? Because we, we've not told you. You know, we, we're, we're, you know, we have all the info. And all of a sudden, you, show, you know, they show up and the church is just booming. And they go, well, how do you know? They go, well, well Matthew wrote a book. And we're just following the teachings of Jesus that Matthew told us about. So that's how we know Matthew wrote something else besides the Gospel of Matthew. Because that church predates the writing of the Gospel of Matthew. And as you remember, uh, when the, the Jews came back from Babylon, not all of them came back. So Jews were scattered throughout not only all this part of the world, this is uh, Iraq, Iran. Jews were established all the way over here as well. And so when the story of Jesus gets to the Jews, a lot of Jews convert to Christianity. So Christianity is widespread. It's actually wider spread than the Roman Empire at, at this time in history. Uh, the other thing this shows you, George Parks would love this too. This is all the... Uh, Roman legions and which legion there, there were and where they're at, which shows you that they did not have a lot of legions. They controlled through uh, taxation through fear. Uh, the re in 1868, the reason there are three here, what are they surrounding? Jerusalem. This is when the Jews chose poorly. You know what's that from Indiana Jones? You know, choose wisely, Doctor Jones. They chose poorly, and they rebelled in 1868. And so you have three legions surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, and by 8070, there are no more, there is no more Jerusalem. There are no more Jews living in Jerusalem because they're all dead. Uh, what you'll find early on from the Romans, the Romans are really good about allowing you to do what you do as long as you pay your taxes and you don't rebel. If you rebel, they have no mercy. Uh, a great example is uh, Zipporah. At the time of Jesus' birth, Zipporah was about six miles away. Uh, and uh, it was a Roman, uh, kind of like administrative center. Uh, there was a change. Uh, Herod the Great dies. And so the Jews thought that they needed to be independent again. So a guy named, I think it was Simon or Peter, decides to have a rebellion. He chooses Zipporah because it happens to have a military base where he can get arms. So he, you know, this is a little bit, uh, you know, lame is, right? We're going to take the city. We're going to raise our banner. Everyone's going to flow to us. We're going to start the rebellion that ends the, that ends the Roman occupation of Palestine. Again, chose poorly. Uh, they took out Zipporah, killed the Romans who were there, took their armor, set up a city. Romans are not real, they don't have a lot of legions, but when they get there, they have no mercy. They surrounded Zipporah, said, here's your deal. Uh, you guys surrender, and all your women and children are taken to slavery. We're killing all you guys fast. We'll just, we won't torture you, just kill you. You make us fight. We are still taking the women and children into slavery, but we're going to crucify every man in the city. The Jews said, show us. They did. Uh, they said they, they were in Zipporah, which is a Roman town, and they thought, well, there's no way they're going to destroy their own city, the Romans. They destroyed the entire city to the ground. 
took every woman and children sent them into slavery, took every man that survived the battle, built crosses, crucified them on the top of Zephora, took a Roman century, left them around the city, and said, nobody takes the bodies down until they rot and fall to the ground. Nobody buries these bodies. And so for months afterwards, there were still bodies on the cross. This is the, that's a town six miles from where Jesus was born at. That's from, from Nazareth. So from the early historians say you could smell Zipporah from miles away. And that was a, that's how the Romans dealt justice. As long as you, if you paid your taxes, they did not care. But if you rebelled, they're going to take you to the ground. AD 68, the Jews in Jerusalem rebel. By AD 70, there is no more Jerusalem. All right, a little bit of Jewish history for the book of Mark. Uh, first century Judaism is not the Judaism that you see in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is totally changed by the time it comes to Jesus. Because originally you had Judaism as, as we know it. They go to Babylon. Uh, the Persians then come in, overthrow the Babylonians. They send all the Jews home. Well, all the Jews who want to go home, go home. Uh, a large number of Jews actually stay in Babylon. Uh, we know that that's the book of Esther, are, are the Jews who stay in Babylon. Uh, Hellenistic's Greek, that's Alexander the Greek, comes in, conquers. The Babylonians conquer the Jews. The Persians conquer the Babylonians. Alexander the Great Ed conquers the Persians. He, of course, dies at age 33. Uh, his kingdom breaks up into pieces, which is the Ptolemies and the Seleucids for the Middle East. So at some point in time, the Ptolemies are running uh, Canaan, where the Jews live. Then the Seleucids take it over. The Ptolemies are based in Egypt. The Seleucids are based in uh, Lebanon or Syria. Uh, and then we'll get in, we might get into some of the stories. Uh, the Seleucids finally go too far. The Jews rebel. Hasmoneans, which we know as the Maccabees, independent uh, Jewish state, 80, BC 64, 164 to 63, almost a little over 100 years. They're independent state. They then get fighting amongst themselves. Uh, along come the Romans, who, by the way, really do not want to capture Canaan. We, we think of Jerusalem as being very, very important. Jerusalem was a backwater city. Nobody wanted Canaan. Canaan had nothing that anybody wanted. It had no gold. It didn't have many people. It didn't grow much. It was very mountainous. The only thing they wanted in Canaan uh, was the, the, uh, the road that ran up the coast. And the, the Romans already had it during the Maccabean times. Uh, and what happens is uh, one part of the, uh, the Jews pay the Romans to come in and, and kill the other part. Uh, they forgot the rule that if you hire someone to do your dirty work for them, they really soon figure out that they can take you out too. So the Romans, come, we actually know how much they paid. They paid one ton of gold, eight tons of silver to the Romans who are just coincidentally marching from Egypt. They just conquered Egypt. They're marching back to Rome. It was a drive-by. They literally, uh, one set said, hey, can you kick these other guys out there bothering us? 
And so the, the Roman legionnaire, the legion, commander of the legion, said, how much you got? And they told him. So he goes, yeah, give me, the, give me one ton and eight tons. They delivered it to him. He marched to Jerusalem and arrested everybody. And they came in a Roman province. Uh, and so the Romans take over in uh, 63 BC. So when the story of Mark occurs, you have all this political history sitting here. Uh, and then you have all this adaptation to what we see in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, from the Babylonians, the Jews now speak Aramaic. They don't speak Hebrew anymore. Everyone speaks Aramaic. Hebrew is written, and the priests read Hebrew. And if you're a super religious guy, you speak Hebrew. But the average person speaks Aramaic. Uh, and it also, the Babylonians kill the king, so the priest become dominant. And the synagogue gets invented in Babylon and is brought back to Jerusalem. So the average person starts worshiping in the synagogue. The temple is there, but your primary area of worship is the synagogue. The Persians uh, allowed them to build a new temple, gave them lots of local control. The Greeks come in, force them to speak Greek. And during this period of time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees form as religious bodies. Then the, when the Hasmoneans take over from the Greeks, you get political independence, and then you have the Essenes party gets formed as a splinter off the Pharisees. And then the Romans take over. The, the Romans bring lots of stuff. They bring security. You do not rebel. You, you're not a criminal. You do not rebel during the Roman Empire. Uh, you, if you do, you have a very short life. Uh, they have limited autonomy. You can do what you want as long as you pay your taxes and you don't rebel. The zealots formed during this period of time because they look back to the Hasmoneans and say, this is what God called us to be, an independent world power country. So therefore, we need to kick the Romans out so we can be independent. That's the zealots. And so at the time when Jesus comes in, the story of Mark, you basically have these four, we'll call them political parties. They're in the background. Every discussion in the book of Mark, you've got to understand who's he talking to. Which one of these four groups is there? Are they the Sadducees? The Sadducees are very, very wealthy. They're all Basically, you have to be a priest to be a Sadducee. Not all priests were Sadducees, but all Sadducees were priests. They're very wealthy because they cooperate with the government. They cooperate with the Greeks. They cooperate with the Romans. The Pharisees, the most there ever was 6,000, they are the very, very uh, smart, educated, non-priests. They have a very, very strict way of living. And when we run into them, they're, they're, they're the people of the book. They know the book frontwards and back, backwards. Most Pharisees have memorized most, if not all, uh, uh, some of the five, first five books of the Bible. A lot of them have memorized all five books of the Bible. Very, very smart guys. Uh, the Essenes are splinter off the Pharisees. They basically uh, look a lot like Christianity. They talk about piety. They talk about poverty. They live in community with each other. They pr practice immersion baptism. There are thousands of members. They tend to withdraw from the rest of uh, uh, Jew the rest of Jews. They live in their own cities. 
Uh, and we know about them because they write, they also write the Bible down. And we have, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are basically from the Essenes. And then we have the Zealots. Uh, they're all about independence. And they're all about armed independence. And they're happy to do whatever it takes to kick the Romans out. Uh, their number is unknown, but we know there are lots of rebellions uh, during this period of time. And uh, we know several of the apostles themselves are probably zealot. Uh, basically, uh, one Peter, who the book is. Because think about it. Garden of Gethsemane, who's got a sword on his hip? One guy. Who's that? Peter. So uh, that is the... Uh, that's what a zealot would do. He'd be the guy carrying, the, you know, he'd be, in today's sense, he'd be the guy with the gun and all he's the other dressed. things. He's, yeah, he's ready to roll. Yeah. Uh, Herods, in the New Testament, there's lots of Herods. When we talk about, we'll try to explain which Herod we're talking about. Uh, the good thing is, Mark does not deal with any of the birth of Jesus. Herod the Great is not in the book at all. He's in uh, Luke and Matthew. Uh, pretty much, when, we're, when he talks about Herod, he's talking about Herod and uh, Antipas. Uh, that's the Herod that is in the entire book of Mark. Uh, and we'll talk about, he is a, he is a character as well. Uh, this is what the kingdom looked like at the time of the Jews. Uh, when Herod the Great dies, he splits his kingdom among his, uh, basically three of his kids. Uh, Antipas gets Galilee and Perea, uh, Philip gets this area up in here, and uh, Archelaus gets this area. Archelaus is such a bad ruler that the Romans kick him out and appoint their own person who we know we meet as Pontius Pilate. Uh, so that's why when Jesus comes along, this part is now run by the Romans. It used to be by the Herods, but Archelaus... We're talking about rebellions. In the 10 years Archelaus is the ruler of this area, there are five armed rebellions that the Romans have to put down. That, which means they have to move a legion from up in Syria down here to put down the rebellion and go back. Again, they don't like doing that. So after the fifth one, Archelaus gets removed. Uh, he, he took a really bad time. He was actually in Rome during the fifth rebellion, asking to be made king of all this area. And uh, so he's literally talking to, her to uh, the emperor when the letter comes that, oh, by the way, there's another rebellion in your place. And there's another letter that comes with him by the legionnaire commander named Quinius, who is a, he's the George Patton of Rome at that time. Everybody knows Quinius. Uh, Quinius writes a letter to the, Rome, to the emperor, who is his friend, and says, hey, this is the fifth time I've had to come down here. Can you do something about that? And so the Roman Emperor Augustus says, yep, can do something about that. Aquilius, we're promoting you. We're promoting you to warden of the city of Rome. You can't leave Rome ever again. If you leave Rome, that's rebellion against the emperor, I will, you will be killed. Live the rest of your life in Rome. Oh, Pontius Pilate, you're now governor. Uh, so he was promoted up to a uh, position so he never had to leave Rome. Wait, so when the, the, the 
No, uh, Archelaus. Uh, Quinius was actually the governor of Syria, which is a very, very wealthy, Syria's a very, very wealthy province. Canaan was not a wealthy province. It was not, it was not a sign of, uh, a good sign when you're, you're made the governor of Canaan. It's very poor, the tax revenues were poor, uh, they rebelled all the time. It was like, okay, yeah. So Pontius Pilate was probably bugging him to give, give an appointment somewhere, so he got sent here. All right, so the theme, Jesus is the servant Messiah. Very, very different to the Romans, because they don't think of servants. Uh, the structure is pretty similar. There are either three acts or two acts and an intermission. Act one, first eight chapters, answer the question, who is Jesus? Everyone else says who Jesus is. Act two, this little chapter and a half here, he talks, he's, he's in Galilee in the first one, he's moving south in the second chapter. Who do you say I am? Meaning he's talking to his disciples during this period, this little intermission. I'm talking to the disciples, who do you say I am? All these other people are in the first eight chapters are saying, who do I say I am? Who, who do they think Jesus is? Act two is, what do the disciples think Jesus is? Act three, chapter 11 to 16, Jesus in Jerusalem tells the stories how Jesus becomes king. And it's not the king the way everybody thinks he's going to be king. And that's the whole book, is how Jesus is not what everyone thinks he is. No matter what they say he is, when you get down here, Mark reveals who he really is. Uh, some more emphasis, we're about out of time, and that's the end. Alright, so... When we're talking about 16 chapters, three things. Chapters 1 through 8 in Galilee. Chapter 8 and a half through 10, walk, traveling down to Jerusalem. And the last five chapters are, I'm in Jerusalem, and Jesus. this is how Jesus becomes the servant and the Messiah. Because the theme of the book is Jesus is, is the king, but he's the servant king. Very, very different for the Romans, who are used to seeing, I want to be emperor. But I can't be emperor, at least I want to be a senator, right? Can't be a senator, make me a question. You know, I want to be high up. Mark flips it and says, you have to serve everybody else. That you, that Jesus is the ultimate servant. And as a disciple of Jesus, you have to be the servant. All right, next week, chapter one.